January 7th, 1928, 9.30 a.m. John Delaney has been a cab driver in Lakefront City for nearly 10 years. Today, he's out in front of the courthouse. There should be a lot of fares here, at least when the hearing lets out. Senator Andrew Barrington is in town, and he's come to make a big announcement regarding the fight against organized crime. He's supporting an initiative that would give the National Bureau of Investigation more power, allowing it to fight organized crime on their own level. It sounds like a good enough idea to John. Crime tends to spike in Lakefront whenever the latest syndicate rises, and there's been an increase in violence again lately. But he tries to stay clear of definitive political opinions, instead flowing with the views of his passengers. Whatever gets him the biggest tip. Not long after he arrives, John is approached by someone who looks important. A man in an expensive three-piece suit who hands him a sealed envelope. He tells John to deliver the envelope to a ritzy north side address. There he is to pick up several people and take them to the corner of Grant and Maxwell streets. John's never delivered the mail before, but when he's handed a wad of cash, he considers it fair since he's picking people up. So he puts the car in gear and goes. He arrives 20 minutes later to a large fancy home. Probably someone in charge of the shindig at the courthouse. John steps up to the front door and knocks. A rather attractive, just shy of middle-aged woman answers the door. He hands her the envelope and waits. Tearing it open, she reads the letter inside. It's apparently short as she's quickly gathering her children. They have to put on their coats and protect them from the crisp winter air outside, and the younger one has to grab his teddy bear, and they pile on into the back of the cab. John is curious about what the letter said, but he knows better than to ask questions. If the wealthy want to talk, they will initiate the conversation. Instead, the well-dressed woman speaks to her children, straightening their clothes as they squirm in the seat. She says something about going to see their daddy. It's here when John Delaney starts to sense that something's wrong. He can't tell what, but just something seems off. He drives on anyway. The corner of Grant and Maxwell Streets does not seem like the type of place a woman like this and her two children would go. As he slows to a stop at the curb, he notices that she would agree. There's no time to react. The man who had hired John rushes from the building, a tommy gun in his hands. Four other men fan out to his flanks, all armed with pistols and charging the car. The woman screams. The children follow suit. Two of the men get in the back seat with them. The one who had hired John gets into the passenger seat. The machine gun always pointed at John. He's got two shiny rings on the finger of his trigger hand. Drive, the man says. They go, each turn directed by the one with the tommy gun. A car follows, carrying the other two hoodlums. They arrive ten minutes later at the intersection of Dearborn Avenue and Geneva Court. There the man directs John to turn into the alley. He does. The other car pulls in behind, blocking them in. The workman can be heard breathing heavily in the back seat. The children, they're crying. John's fingers grip tightly to the wheel. He thinks of his own wife he just wants to go home to. He hears the door open in the back and the thugs usher the woman and her children out. She pleads with them but follows in hopes that compliance will save her life. They're escorted to the other car behind them. When they disappear inside, John looks at his own captor, the man with the shiny rings still in the passenger seat. He wonders why he hasn't left. The man casually watches the others while keeping John in his peripheral view. 
John doesn't dare move. Trying something might. The man shoots John in the face. A small burst does the trick. He doesn't even bother looking his victim over. He simply opens the door and steps out, stepping onto the sideboard of the car as it pulls away. Welcome to RPG Storytime, the channel where we take stories generated out of role-playing games and narrate them in short, digestible segments. Today, we begin another Gangbusters adventure with The Vanishing Investigator. The module is by Mark Akers, and the story is game-mastered and written by Jeff MacArthur. The courtroom was packed with reporters from across the nation. As a local from one of Lakefront's most prominent papers, Amy Jo True had a visible seat near the front. Still, she wasn't used to all the competitive company, and she was both intimidated and intrigued by the host of new faces that she looked over. They were not as interested in their surroundings. Most of the other reporters were reading over their questions, writing new ones, or staring at the doors as if their eyes could open them and pull in the speaker. They were here to see Senator Andrew Barrington, whose crime initiative would be to provide federal powers to the Bureau of Investigation so it would be strong enough to go after criminal organizations like the ones that so often plagued Lakefront. It seemed that every time a syndicate was taken down, another one popped up. The real reason, of course, was because prohibition on the manufacture, transportation, and sale of alcohol was naive and strengthened these criminal organizations. But recognizing that would mean admitting that the government was wrong, and no senator was going to do that. Barrington had formed a subcommittee for a hearing on organized crime, which was going to hear from witnesses today. The star witness was going to be a surprise, though A.J. was sure who it would be. Nick Zabata had been the top lieutenant of Stefano Lucanetti, whose bootlegging operations made him the underworld boss of the city. Last year, Zabata challenged Lucanetti's authority and tried to take control with the help of his own followers. Lucanetti won and Zabata fled, but those who knew the feud well had expected Zabata to make his triumphant return. He was a showman. Someone who liked to make his entrances known. A.J. had expected this return to be as the head of an invading syndicate, but since this hearing was such a circus and the star witness was someone who knew the underworld, she knew it could be no one but Zabata. Promptly at 10 a.m., the doors to the judge's chambers flew open. Senator Barrington led the train of his committee into the room and their seats at the front. They were followed by a flurry of aides, the final person to enter was the very man A.J. was expecting, Nick Zabata, though few reporters from out of town knew it. At the moment, he looked like an underdressed guest. He took his seat next to all the others, slouched over and glared at the seated assembly as if scoping out what to steal from them. A few local reporters rushed out of the room to be the first to call in what they were seeing, but they lost their seats in so doing. A.J. remained where she was. The senator began to give an extended speech, explaining the necessity of a federalized investigative body, one financed by the government to hunt down criminals who were well-funded and crossing state borders. His talk turned to his guest, whom he described as, A criminal, yes, a hardened criminal, but one who's now willing to risk his life, ladies and gentlemen, to help put an end to this reign of terror, not only in Lakefront City, but 
in every city in our great nation. The senator was interrupted by an aide, stepping up behind him and whispering in his ear as she handed him a note. Barrington went silent for a moment while he read the note. He then continued, Ah, yes, I am reminded of several important points in my notes in the next room. Uh, The hearings are adjourned for ten minutes. As the crowd murmured, Senator Barrington turned abruptly from the mic and marched toward the door which he had entered. A.J. noticed that when he got close to it, he quickened his pace to hurry through and closed the door impatiently behind himself. She turned her attention to Zabata, who stirred, ducking slightly as though waiting to be shot at and scanning the room. A.J. followed his glance at one point when he looked worriedly to a particularly well-dressed man at the side of the room. That man was in turn searching the room for danger. Another, dressed as crisply, ran to Zabata and stood by him, scanning the crowd prepared to remove him from the room. Though the air was abuzz with speculation, no one moved from his or her seat. Every member of the press was focused on what would happen next. At last, one of Barrington's aides went into the room he had entered and cracked open the door. "'He's gone!' she shouted to the assembly. The well-dressed men near Zabata acted quickly, grabbing him and rushing him out the side door. The members of the subcommittee stood up, all of them searching for exits, trying to figure out what to do next. This put the crowd into a near panic, many of them standing, some pushing toward the exit. Someone at the front shouted that the hearing was adjourned indefinitely and the members of the committee were ushered into the judges' chambers. A.J.'s eyes were on the young aide who had handed the senator the note. She was standing nervously in a corner, shrinking backward as if hoping to meld with the wooden walls. She wasn't considered important enough to be led into the other room, so if there was danger in the courtroom, she would have to face it alone. A.J. approached her. Did you get a look at it? A.J. asked. A look at what? The young woman said. The note. The one that rattled your boss. Oh no, it was folded tightly and I was told it was an urgent message from Washington. Who told you that? The aide rose up to her tiptoes and tried to look over the crowd as she said, Um, I I don't see her. Her? She was blonde, shapely, but she was dressed inconspicuously, almost like a man. Would you recognize her if you saw her again? Yes, I, I can't find her now, though. Yes, I got that. I might need to reach you later, A.J. said, and she got the young woman's contact information. A crowd was gathering by the judges' chambers, waiting for someone to come out and tell everyone what was happening. A.J. knew that was never going to lead to anything. She went into the hall and searched the phones. One of them had become available, and she called into her newspaper to tell them what had happened. Find out everything you can, her editor insisted. Senators don't just vanish. Keep us updated on what you find out. A.J. scratched her head with the receiver a couple times before hanging up. She didn't know where to begin. Whoever had taken the senator was long gone, and the room where there would be clues was blocked off by the hiding subcommittee. Most confusing of all would be how the kidnappers got the senator out. They could not have been hiding in the judge's chambers. The committee had just emerged from there. Plus, getting him out the window and to his car would have caught someone's attention. There were plenty of people strolling along the sidewalk near the courthouse. 
But there was a short lawn before reaching that sidewalk, which was caked in frost. A.J. stepped on it and headed toward the window to the judges' chambers. Like so many buildings that emphasize their importance, these windows stood higher above the ground than normal, just about A.J.'s height. She noticed a slight crack in the window. Looking down, she confirmed what she had suspected. The frost was smashed along the area just below the window. Unlike she had suspected, only one set of footprints walked away toward the sidewalk. Hey, you're on a crime scene, came a voice. AJ looked up to see a man standing at the now open window. He wore Bureau of Investigation credentials on the chest of his jacket. Back off the lawn, please. You might damage clues. Like these footprints? AJ asked, pointing at what she had just found. Are those yours? No, these are mine, she said, pointing at the direction from which she had just come. Those were here, as well as this. She pointed at the larger mark just below the window. Someone clearly jumped out the window and took off that way. What about the others? he asked. Just one, AJ said. That doesn't... Check the coat closet in that room. You'll find Senator Barrington's coat gone, A.J. said. The man disappeared into the room. A few moments later, A.J. heard him call out, No! It's still here! A.J.'s eyes nearly shot open, and then she realized the senator was likely running around in the cold. Then the man's voice added, But there's another coat gone, a camel hair one and a matching scarf, plus a hat with an ice feather. I noticed it because it was so... Gaudy? A.J. asked. The man leaned out the window again. Government people sometimes have special taste. You have the rest of them locked away somewhere safe? A.J. asked. Safe as we can, he said. And Zabota? The man hesitated and then asked, And you are... A.J. True, investigative reporter. And you are... Not a source. Thank you for your help, Ms. True. Now please, clear my crime scene. Annoyed, but not surprised, A.J. walked away from the building onto the sidewalk. There she was, near the row of police cars that had just swarmed into the parking lot. A captain was moving among them, giving orders. He was sending nearly half of the newly arrived vehicles to another location. A.J. recognized the area he was talking about. It was an affluent one, the type of place that if police were swarming, something big had happened. So AJ ran to her car, jumped in, and began to follow. She was able to get on the tail of the last black and white and follow it. They were breaking the speed limit and running red lights, but they were in too big a hurry to stop for the short blonde lady and her white coupe taking up the rear. Whatever was going on would be newsworthy. They arrived in an affluent neighborhood where houses had breathing room between them and manicured lawns flanked curved driveways. Today, red and blue lights from a crowd of squad cars flashed against a teal house whose front door belonged on a castle. AJ pulled over a few houses away, purposely separated from the cops who would probably spare a rookie to write her up for her driving. She was also stopping because she saw a familiar figure. A man with poor posture, wearing a rumpled jacket and tilting his head to one side as if leaning on a pillow. It was Dylan Greeble, a private investigator who tended to show up in strange cases. He was like an omen of unwelcome tidings. But 
He was like a groundhog when it came to digging for information. He was presently soaking in the words of an elderly woman who was flailing her limbs wildly, often pointing to the house, sometimes at the cops. As she came into hearing range, AJ could tell that she was repeating herself, but Dylan was hanging on every word. Without looking over, he interrupted the lady to introduce AJ. Mrs. Warren, may I introduce you to Ms. Amy Jo True? The woman looked over at AJ, eyed her diminutive frame up and down, and declared, Well, I would have mistaken you for a man. Such is the way with so many young ladies today, isn't it? AJ, this fine woman called the police about the break-in. Her name is Elizabeth Warren. No joke. This is not a modern-day political statement. The character's name is literally Elizabeth Warren. The module was written in 1983 by Mark Akers. Blame him. Okay, back to the story. Pleased to meet you, ma'am. AJ started to say, but the old lady interrupted to get AJ up to speed on what was happening. Dylan listened again with intense interest, catching every word as he tilted his head. It was as if doing so sent the blood to the part of the brain needed to concentrate. She described seeing someone in a camel fur coat loitering in the neighborhood. He had his hat down so low you couldn't see his face, she said. The big feather kept shaking on top. Already seemed shifty, if you ask me. He, he, he was looking at that house, watching it like he expected it to do something. Finally, he went to the side and opened one of the windows. We're decent folk around here, and we don't need to lock our windows. Leastways, we didn't used to. Then again, there was that other robbery last month. I was telling this young man about it. It was that house down yonder. AJ interrupted before Mrs. Warren could go too far off track. Did the man climb inside? Yes. He went in and was looking around. That's when I called the police. I hoped they'd catch him in the act. The whole family's gone, so he was... Who lives there? AJ asked. Well, you've got less patience than your friend here. We all know who lives there. It's the most famous member of the neighborhood, Senator Andrew Barrington and his family. He left earlier this morning and not 15 minutes before this intruder arrived. The family also left. A cabbie had come to pick them up. They got out of here in a hurry. Do you know where they went? Now, how would I know that, young lady? I just saw the cab leave. How about the criminal? Dylan interjected. Tell her when he left. I didn't see him, but it seems he left while I was on the phone. When I looked back at the house, the door was open and the crook was gone. Couldn't have taken much. He had been in there but a couple of minutes. Dylan Griebel had a sly smile on his face. AJ knew that look. It meant he had figured something out. AJ was still behind. The woman's prattling was distracting her. Dylan, in turn, knew the look on AJ's face that said she needed to concentrate, so he thanked the old woman and said he'd be in touch. Then, they stepped away. AJ was putting the pieces together while Dylan said, I assume you were at the hearing. What there was of it. The senator left suddenly at ten after ten, Dylan said. Yes. Wait, you weren't there. How did you... I take it he got called away? Dylan guessed. 
An aide handed him a note. It was handed to the aide by a shapely blonde woman. Blondes. You gotta be careful about them. Dylan said. Careful. AJ said. Her own hair was blonde. They were near the police cars now, close enough that they could hear a sound from within one of them. It sounded like a man talking, but the voice was odd and no one was inside the car. Dylan speculated on whether there would be anything to find in the house and whether shoe prints in the frost might reveal anything. He doubted it would be worth the trouble of pulling a favor. While he mumbled, AJ looked in the police car. Part of the back seat was taken up with a metal box with a speaker near the top. Out of this speaker came the voice giving directions to various groups of patrol vehicles, directing one or two to one location, then another. Heard about these? Dylan asked. Just came out. A portable radio. It allows dispatch to coordinate with squad cars already out in the field. Can the riders call back? No, one way only. But... Now hear this! Now hear this! Came the voice on the radio. Cars 21 and 23 proceed to Maxwell and Grant Streets. Secure location for vehicular homicide investigation. Cars 21 and 23 to Maxwell and Grant. AJ looked at Dylan, wondering if he thought it might be related to this. Dylan just stared at the car. Continuing to listen, the voice came on again. Repeat, cars 21 and 23 proceed to Maxwell and Grant to assist in investigation of taxi driver homicide. Let's go, Dylan said, marching away quickly. AJ followed. The taxi that picked up the family, you think? She asked. Or a wild coincidence. He answered. Where's your car? We're taking yours. Mine? I took a taxi. The site of the investigation was only five minutes away. They saw the police presence before they saw the street signs. They were surrounding an alley. AJ parked along the opposite side of the road. Squad cars forming in a semicircle around the alley and officers combing the area for evidence made it difficult to see what was happening. Don't judge, Dylan said, and he pulled something out of the inside of his jacket pocket. AJ saw it was opera glasses. Fan of Pacini? They're good for getting a closer look, he said. Like binoculars? Too powerful. These are designed for seeing something about 100 feet away. Dylan peeked through the tiny glasses. AJ resisted laughing at the delicate way he had to hold them up to his eyes. It was so out of character for him. When the officers cleared away, Dylan could see the body of the victim in the driver's seat. The back of his head was leaning against the crack in the window. His blood trickled out and ran down the side of the car. He had been looking at the passenger in the front seat, Dylan said. AJ sobered. She glanced around as well, spotting fresh skid marks leading into the alley. I doubt those skid marks are his, she said. Unless he was anxious to get to the spot where he'd be killed. Dylan turned his opera glasses to the ground to look, then pulled them away from his face. He could see them just fine. Another vehicle following behind. So the kidnappers somehow got the family to get into the cab, AJ said, which brought them here. They switched them into the other car and killed the cab driver and drove away. That clears the cab driver. I'm sure his family will be happy to know he's not crooked. AJ ignored the comment. She was putting the pieces together for herself. They send a message to Senator Barrington at his hearing. He tells the crowd he'll be right back. Then he sneaks out wearing another senator's coat and hat. And here I thought senators were wimps. Turns out ours is a bit of a badass. 
Dylan looked over to the side of the street on which they were stopped. It was a public park, and the criminals had chosen the perfect place where they wouldn't be seen. AJ scanned the crime scene once again. An officer emerged from the alley, carrying a teddy bear. It was tagged with an evidence number. There was no other angle now. She needed to know who had done this. This has been a presentation of RPG Storytime Gangbusters, a playthrough of The Vanishing Investigator by Mark Akers. Tune in next time to hear the continuation of the story. Subscribe to the channel to hear more tales of RPG games, or check out our YouTube channel. The link is in the description. You can also read books by the writer and game master of these stories by going to bandwagononline.com. We hope you enjoyed it, and happy gaming, everybody!